The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Productivity in the UK, if you measure it as GDP per hour worked, we produce a quarter less than our neighbours across the English Channel. If you measure it as GDP per capita, well, it gets worse. That productivity is only going to get worse, of course, with strikes rampant this winter. But it's a long-term issue. It doesn't seem to be getting any better, despite 12 years of a supposedly pro-business Conservative government. And Covid hasn't helped. According to the Office of National Statistics, public service productivity is 6.5% below the pre-coronavirus pandemic level. So, should we expect productivity to improve? Do we need productivity to improve if we're going to have a better standard of living or even just to hang on to what we've got? Is there something fundamental in the structure of the British economy which is making it less efficient than other nations? Or are British workers just not prepared to work hard? That's what we're going to talk about this week. The why curve. So, you know, on that, you know, workers not working hard, supposedly, you know... when well, you she, don't work hard, do you? No, I've done not at all. If I can possibly avoid it. When, when she was uh, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Liz Truss, this is sometime between 2017 Liz and... Liz Truss, wasn't she Prime Minister? She, for a week or two, she, she was, wasn't she? I forget. Um, she uh, shook hands with the Queen. Oh, my and, God. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that's how long ago that was. Uh, but, uh, yeah, she said our low productivity was to do with mindset and attitude, she said, the, yeah. those years ago. Yeah, you lazy she, people. But pretty much what she was saying. She said, we've got to have the mindset set of China and oh, I think she had aspirations that maybe she was going to be kept become a dictator uh, so, so well. a quote from her there's yes. a fundamental issue of, pe- of British people British people's working culture essentially if we're going to be a richer country and a more prosperous country that needs to change but I think mm. it's more than that isn't it well I mean the whole thing is how do we define productivity hopefully we'll find out in a minute because we're going to speak to someone who really knows about it mm. but it's not just how many widgets you produce it's to do with the value of what you what you add to the economy for the amount of time you work I mean, it's a very complicated thing, and well, therefore very hard to see how we can change well, it. Well, a lot of economists use GDP per hour work mm. as a sort of the measure, which in the UK in 2020 was 69 US dollars. In France, it was 80. Right. Germany, 78. We're actually not much higher than Italy <laughs> on 65, if you allow for purchase power parity, which yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about on the program today. In 2021... So that was 2020. Yeah. The following year, because, uh, of course, this is all the COVID I- influence, US productivity increased from 80 to 84, whereas we went from 69 to below 68. France stayed at 80. So we're getting worse. We're Everyone getting it else, wrong somehow. Uh, uh, yeah, and we're getting it continually wrong, and we're getting worse at it as well. So let's so, look at what's going on uh, with uh, Professor uh, Philip McCarney, a professor of urban and regional economics in the Productivity Institute at the University of Manager, uh, Manchester. He's, uh, he's also a, a long-standing advisor to the OECD, the European Commission, and various government bodies around the world as well. Uh, and he joins us now. So, Philip, I mean, fundamental question. I mean, productivity, how do you measure it? I know that the, you know, the traditional economics approach is to say uh, GDP per hour worked. But I mean, how meaningful, how useful is that really if you're doing it as, as an international comparison? So, I mean, this is a really important question because, you know, the, the public are often get quite confused reading all these different indicators and indices that, that are referred to in whether it's newspapers or think tank articles or government pieces and so on. The the best way to think about it, I think, is on two levels. The overall best measure is GDP per capita, which is gross domestic product per capita, or there's a slight variation on that that we use in the UK, uh, GVA per capita, gross value added. They're, They're basically more or less the same thing. There's some slight technical differences, but in a sense, they tell the same story. 
Um, but that's different to what I said. GDP per capita is different to GDP per hour work. But I guess, I mean... You, it is, but uh, GDP per capita... Yes, is, but they're, is, all, they're all measures of output, essentially. They are, but GDP per capita is the best overall measure. So let, let me explain why. There are lots of different measures of productivity that those of us in the field use, such as GDP per hour work, GVA per hour work, um, GVA per... Uh, unit of capital. Uh, there's a, a technical measure we use called TFP, which is total factor productivity, which is a, a complex measurement, which is a residual after you control for all the inputs into a business or an economy. In general, to understand the problem, you don't need to go there. All you need to think of is broadly GDP per capita or GDA per capita is the measure of the wealth, the, the value of output of the economy divided by the number of people. And that gives you the best right. overall understanding of how prosperous a country is. So I'll give you an example about GVA per hour worked or GDP per hour worked, why, why that can be also misleading. So you can measure the amount of value of an output you get in business or country or city or whatever for every hour worked. But the numbers of hours worked are also related to that value. So, for example, you think about in, in the London economy, for example, a big global city, you know, if you get on the tube at night, you know, it could be 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night, certainly pre-COVID, you know, the tube would still be packed with people coming home from work because people work very long hours. They are highly productive per hour worked, but also that stimulates further hours worked. Whether in, where in low productivity economies, what you tend to get is, low output per hour worked, but that also tends to reduce the numbers of hours worked. That, and these things yeah. also depend on what, what we call cyclicality. So when an economy is growing, you're going through an upswing in the business cycle, you tend to get more hours worked. So you think about a small business starts to get more contracts. They start taking on more employees. They start taking on more jobs. And the managers and the bosses in that small business have to start working longer hours to cope with all those contracts. Now they could say, well, right. I don't want to do that. I'm going to work less hours. Fair enough. They've got that choice. But other businesses will say, actually, we've been waiting for these opportunities. Precisely what we want. We will take longer hours. So the, the, num the number of hours is itself, in economists, we would say, is also endogenous to the output. It's also to do. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling with. That. I'm not an economist, but the the idea. I mean, if you think you have a factory that produces widgets, it produces more widgets per hour. That's uh, more productivity. But how? Really, in something that is in almost intangible in the service economy, how far can you measure ac accurately what's going on? I mean, obviously, I suppose in terms of what is earned, yeah. but in terms of effort put in, time worked, I mean, that doesn't necessarily apply to the results and indeed the profits that come from it. I mean, that is a point, isn't it? That if you've got a very service-oriented economy like we do in the UK, you can't increase productivity by putting on another machine, uh, which you can in manufacturing economies, because... It is very labour-intensive. Work is very labour-intensive. Well, yes and no. So I'll come back to the, the example you've used is a very good one. So, so the, the widgets, the number of widgets you produce per hour or whatever, is one type of productivity. You know, more inputs, more outputs. So, you know, a Japanese car factory relative to a British car factory in the 1980s, more units of output per hour or per day, per week, per year, whatever. That is true. But... That is an indicator of a much broader concept of the value added in terms of the process. Why did the Japanese cars produce, uh, car plants produce more? Because their organizational structures were much smarter. 
the level of technology that was going into the cars was higher. The management systems were better organized. The decision-making was much more long-term. Now, those are what we call intangible assets. They're to do with knowledge. The real value is not the number of cars produced. It's all the knowledge which was, in a sense, focused into that production process. It's a smarter way of doing things. Now, that is equally true for services. If you take the financial markets in London, for example, you know, people are using computers, software, running models and so on, doing analysis. But what's going into that process is a lot of what we call intangible capital. It's knowledge related. It's not about widgets production as such. It's about the production of knowledge, which is then transferred. It's re reformed and transferred into marketable products and services. So the argument yeah. about GDP per capita and so on is just as relevant for services as it is for manufacturing. The difficulty, as you say, and you're completely correct, it's a bit more difficult to measure it. Now, it's not, it's not that we can't do it. We can do it. But there are slightly more complex issues in measuring intangibles. And one of the things that we're working on at the Productivity Institute at the University of Manchester is exactly those issues. We have teams of people working across the country addressing these kind of measurement problems in terms of intangibles. But this is a worldwide effort. If you look at the OECD, Brookings, yeah. places like that, everybody's doing this. But in the end, you know, you, you change these measures, but they don't fundamentally change the overall picture. But, but given if the difficulty is in measuring, and there are difficulties, as you say, it's feasible, isn't there a huge risk of distortion? So I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm working for some uh, company in, in perhaps computer gaming. I come up with a brilliant idea. It takes me 10 minutes on, on a Monday morning, and that brilliant idea earns that company vast amounts. I have been hugely productive, but there's no measurement of time that makes any sense in that way, because I came up with the idea in 10 minutes. And you, you talked about, you know, the time, uh, the, the hours worked, not being being as important as just the overall output but at an individual level people do want to if, if people are given the choice you know you could you produce the same amount but work less people would say yes i'll work less i'll take friday off for example uh you know so at a, at a personal level that that's very important to people working less but you know managing to improve their output over time okay so the time issue you both raised yes you're, you're completely correct so the way you would think about this problem um you know, we can measure a lot about intangibles. There's no question. And, you know, you can measure countries that tend to be intangibles or service-related dominated, such as the UK. If you look at the UK and the Netherlands, for example, they have almost identical industrial structures. Um, but when we measure the, the service industries in the UK are much less productive than the Netherlands, much less productive, except the financial services in London. Services in general in the UK are far less productive than an equivalent economy with almost an identical industrial structure to ourselves. So the, the productivity problems that we face in the UK are not fundamentally a measurement problem. There are measurement issues and many people working on these, but you have to use like for like. You use the same, if you change the technique slightly, you do the same things in Germany, Japan, Netherlands, where else? So, so the fundamental issue about the productivity challenges are there. Also, a lot of our productivity challenges in the UK are in services. This is really important for people to understand that, that you've got very high value added services in finance, in computing, in information technology, these kinds of areas. But you've also got in the UK the growth of an enormous sector of very, very low value adding service industries, 
often related to things like retail, personal services, and so on. And this is this is this is an issue that people in the UK are well aware. So, well, why are they low value add- adding? Just explain how that works. Well, they're in sectors that we economists call non-tradables. They're primarily local services for the local economy, and. On one sense, you can say people might feel that that's a good thing, much more local. The problem is from a market point of view, that tends to lead to lower productivity. The less exposure to competition nationally and internationally tends to actually drive productivity down. And this is a global phenomenon. This is not a a UK specific phenomenon, but this this is a real thing. But then the time element that you raise is also important. We can measure productivity vis-a-vis different dimensions of time. So, for example, you think in a manufacturing firm, you can measure inventory terms, you know, kind of, uh, you know, your supply chain control mechanisms, how those supplies are then transferred into embodied into new products, how fast you get them out of the door, how quickly you get the capital in from, you get the capital recouped through the sales to cover your inventory costs. So you do have measurements of these things. Your point about the time of individual people is, is a really important point, and I think it's actually a bigger point than you've probably underscored here. Because, yes, you're right, if somebody comes up with a good idea in, in, in a few minutes, it doesn't really happen like that, but let's just imagine that's the case, then, yes, your productivity vis-a-vis time is extraordinarily high. But that does show up in the statistics, because also there'll be lots of time when you're not having good ideas. You have to take the whole package so it's it's the overall how what is the value of the good ideas you have innovation software whatever it might be what is the overall value of those over a time period like a week or a year or whatever divided by the number of people and that's why gdp per capita is the best measure because it tells you effectively the whole story how smart is it that we do these things and the time issue also about people preferring, for example, to work less hours. I'll use the example of the Netherlands. I know well because I worked there for quite a long time. The Dutch work the shortest hours of any country in the industrialized world, and they sleep the longest hours. There's lots of data on this. The Dutch are one of the world's most productive countries. They have no natural assets apart from gas in the north of the Netherlands, the slaughter and domes it's called. Apart from that, they have no natural assets. In fact, they have negative natural assets. Because about a third of the country, 40% is under sea level. And they have to basically defend against that. So they have almost no natural assets. It's almost negative, if you like. So they have to coordinate everything they do. So everything in Dutch culture is about coordination, working in teams, developing plans and strategies, and sticking to the medium and long term. But what that does is it has a lot of additional effects that helps them to do things in a smart manner. Because for a start, investors trust the Dutch because they know when they develop a plan, it's going to be medium and long-term, everything they do. And the business culture in the Netherlands is exactly the same as the way they build infrastructure. They do it in advance. They plan it for a long time. Once they, do, once they decide to deliver it, they follow it through and they stick with it. So for investors, for example, investors have confidence. So you get a lot of credit going into businesses, international credit, domestic credit, and so on. That tends to improve the capital stock because you've got more investment taking place. Therefore, it helps you with people with good ideas in the Netherlands who've got better infrastructure and equipment to work with, whether it's transportation infrastructure or better software systems or whatever. 
This is what they do. So, right, so it's the it's the good idea and the follow through. That's where you're going exactly. wrong, Roger, because Roger has a good yeah. got, Roger has a good idea and then says that's it for the day. That's but, me but done. That's basically so, but, it, you're, you're you're completely it, correct. It's the good idea and the medium and the long term follow through. That's exactly correct. But it's the efficiency. It seems to me is what you're saying because I mean we've we've kind of defined what productivity is now effectively. And but you're not saying that the the, the UK is way behind on yes. this. But certainly is, behind the Dutch. Almost every but is the difference? Is the difference? Effort, interest, culture, or just plain business efficiency. And how do we measure that? How do we compare? So, if we, you know, how do we stack up against the Dutch? Because if it's GDP per capita, and we look at that on a on a global scale, then you've got all those, you know, I know that you know economists like using purchase power parity, the PPP, uh, to 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 try and <laughs> to try and have a look at. I mean, because if you look, just look at. I mean, every economy is different. So, if you look at GDP per capita, there's going to be some economies where the, the currency is very low compared to the pound for for example. So how do you make that comparison in a meaningful way? Well, I, again, the point you just raised uh, is, is right on the money here. We use we, we use techniques to standardise. So, for example, you could be in, a, in an area, a locality, where um, output values are very high, but the cost of living is so high that what it translates into in terms of housing, uh, schooling or whatever is actually relatively lower. So you have to allow for cost variations. You have to allow for the variations in expenditure, purchasing power, use the word PPP, purchasing power parity. So you control for the value of currencies, you control for the value of local costs. Um, and again, there are standardized techniques for doing this. And I mean, there's a, so lying for that, how do we compare against the Dutch? Then? Oh, we're about 25, 30 percent below them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, all right. It comes back then to the fact that we are not obviously. We're, as good as the Dutch at uh, this kind of thing. We're, 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 we're even below we're, the we're French, aren't we? Fifty percent below the Republic of Ireland. So. Right. But you see, I, but then, but then that's that's an interesting thing because Ireland obviously makes quite a lot of money by selling stuff with very low tax. You I mean they use as a bit of a tax haven? So there's money coming in and money going out with very few people involved in that. The, the, the operations like that are going to distort the numbers, aren't they? No, not really, because uh, there's all different indicators. And they, the, all the Irish indicators, whether it's GDP, GNP, productivity per hour, whatever, they all basically tell the same story. The converse is the Dutch yeah. case, or the Germans. The Germans would be, Germany would be about 15, 15 to 20% more prosperous than us, richer than us in, in terms of GDP per capita. The Dutch would be 25 to 30%, something of that order, about 25% higher. Um, they're much higher tax countries. It, I mean, it, the tax thing doesn't really tell you anything about the story. It's it's really about how smart do we do what we do. Well, that, that, that's what I wanted to come on to, because I mean, we've kind of laid out the problem, but we don't really know what the cause is and therefore potentially the solution. I mean, is it, as I was saying, efficiency? Is it culture? What is it that makes or, us or is it less the, productive? Uh, or is it the centralisation of the economy here, the fact that so much is based in the southeast and then we've got the rest of the country, which is which doesn't have those efficiencies? You're a geographic economic geography, uh, so this is right down your road. How much of it is to do with the geography of the UK? Okay, well, 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 firstly, the geography is a big part of the story. There's no question about that. So if you look at broadly, I take a hinterland of London and a hinterland, of, let's say maybe approximately Norwich, Bristol, down to Exeter and back over, that part of the country, and it, of course, it doesn't mean that everywhere in that area is super prosperous or anywhere everywhere outside that zone is, is, is low prosperity, productivity. It doesn't mean that. But, but approximately, take that part of the country. The productivity levels and growth rates are fairly consistent with the Nordic countries, 
Austria, Australia, Canada. I mean, there isn't really a great deal of a problem to work on, to kind of worry about on many levels. Whereas if you take the Midlands of England, uh, the North, Wales, Northern Ireland, the Western parts of Scotland, the Eastern parts of Scotland would be more akin to the Southeast of England, but the Western parts of Scotland, uh, Northern Ireland, Wales, all of the Midlands, all of the North of England, broadly that large zone, which accounts for about half, half of the UK population, as productivity levels, which in the end are the best measure of prosperity. Paul Krugman said that productivity is not everything. It's just in the long run, it's almost everything. I'm absolutely, I think it's completely correct. Those regions have productivity and prosperity levels, which are poorer than the Czech Republic, only marginally above Slovakia, poorer than Slovenia, um, poorer than almost everywhere in the former East Germany. The former East Germany today, even if you take... Berlin out is richer than about eighty percent of the UK. But so why, is, why is that? What's going on? I mean, is, is it is it because you're looking at GDP per capita and there's not many hours work because there's a lot of unemployed people or there's uh, retired people? Well, well, there are, look well, at, well, there isn't a lot of unemployed people. There's people who withdrawn from the labour force, particularly post COVID. But this yeah. long predated that. So actually, the UK has had lower unemployment levels than almost any other country. But if so you looked at if you, if you looked at GDP per capita, really issue. If you looked at GDP, but, the, but the, there are a lot of old people as well, though, so the workforce would be small. So if yeah, you looked at G- our country is younger than most of our competitors, don't forget. Yeah, yeah. Well, something is going on, clearly, in, in, yes, this, in these parts. So is it, what is essentially the factor there? Is it inefficient work practices? Is it lack of technology? What is it at there's, core? There's no businesses there. That's the issue. Well, I mean, there so are businesses there. So, you know, I mean, but, the, you, but you're left a lot of it is, is retail, as you say, the, the low-value retail, would say, adding very little to, to the economy, isn't it? And because, because all the productive elements of the, of, of the economy, as we've just had, are all, are, are all based in, in, in that southeast, well, southeast, southwest. Yes. So, so what corner. is going on in, in the rest of the country, Philip? I mean, I wouldn't say that all the productive businesses in the southeast or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of – I mean, the UK is a very high entrepreneurial economy. So the level of startup, the number of startups uh, in the UK is, is consistently high. Um, people want to be entrepreneurs. People want to start their own businesses. And, that's, and it's, it's remained stable. I mean, that's actually been falling in the United States for more than 20 years, the levels of people starting businesses, new, new businesses and so on. In the UK, it's remained fairly stable. So the UK is an entrepreneurial economy. So it's not that there aren't good ideas or people don't want to do stuff. That, that's not the case. Or that all the high value added is, is, is in terms of businesses are just in one part of the country. So it's, it's a much more nuanced picture than that. But there are, there are several things going on. Firstly, one of the characteristics of the UK economy when we talk about these productivity shocks is what I call, the word I use is decoupling. For about 30 years, the UK economy internally has been decoupling on many, many dimensions. And what that means is it's been more and more concentrating in the South and Southeast, which has been pulling away from the rest of the country, but it hasn't been pulling the country along. You often hear politicians or journalists talking about London acting as a kind of a motor of the economy, pulling everybody along. That is not what has happened. London has pulled itself along and a, and a certain hinterland, and in a sense, decoupled from the rest of the country, which has been drifting backwards slowly. Right, so it's, it's pulled, pulled, pulled away rather than pulled. It's pulled away rather than pulled along. Is is what you're saying? So the well, so well, the, it's, it's pulled away, but it's also left the others drifting. It's yeah. not that if if London had pulled away, but kind of pulled everyone up with it, then it would be okay. That would be the Irish story of Dublin, but that's not what's happened in the UK. The extent to which the more prosperous half of the UK has competed 
performed and outperformed international benchmarks is almost exactly an, a mirror image of the extent to which the rest of the country has underperformed those same international benchmarks. So that's why, as a country as a whole, we've gone nowhere. I mean, we haven't right. overtaken a single country. So, so, and when, when that happens, of course, you get the brain drain, don't you? Because anybody who's, uh, you know, who's ambitious in the in the north of England, you know, which has always been the case, really, but maybe it's more so now, jumps on a train, if there is one, and heads south, uh, because nope. that's where the jobs are. No, no, no. That's an urban myth. That mm. is That is repeated all the time in the press. It's simply untrue when you look at the data. Interregional migration in the UK hasn't has barely changed in forty years. So there isn't, so there isn't a mass migration of university graduates. The number of university graduates from a whole of the UK university system who, who come from outside of London after graduation work, enter into the London labour market. It's about fifty thousand a year. That's about two right. thirds of the pe- number of people. So you're pulling us along here. Give us give us the reason well, why, why, say, why, we, why it's not other people. It's not unemployment. It's not migration out of the area. What is going on then? Okay, so I can tell you how I I view these things. The first thing to say is, in economics terms, this is the most complex problem the UK is trying to understand and address. So the work that we're doing at the Productivity Institute, we have many, many partners across the UK working collectively together to to come to a kind of a clear picture of what's happened in the UK. Because the UK is a massive puzzle. We don't look like anybody else, basically. And the example I use is Angus Madison, who first built the real inter-country comparable data sets at the OECD back in the 1980s. In the 1980s, said there were four kinds of countries in the world, developed countries, developing countries, Japan and Argentina. The <laughs> point was, in the, if you go back to the 1980s, Japan just came from nowhere and overtook so many countries. And equally, Argentina, which was one of the world's richest countries, just went backwards for 60 years. And it's very hard you know, to try and understand these outlier cases. I think today the UK is an outlier. We tend to think of ourselves as kind of normal and sort of a benchmark of how things should be done. I think we are now starting to understand the level of dysfunctionality in the UK economy is really quite extraordinary. And this is what is causing and driving these productivity problems. So there's there's ingredients here. It's like trying to understand what the soup is comprised of. But some of the key ingredients, let me give you one. One is that we are tremendously unbalanced in terms of how we think about the economy, and that's because of 40 years of governance centralization. We started centralizing very, very um, seriously from the early 1980s onwards. And what we end up doing in the UK is we think about everything as being a national problem. So we want a national policy on innovation, a national policy on transport, a national policy on education. I mean, you know the stories. This is what we see in the press every day. The problem is, in a country which is internally very equal, it could be a small country like the Netherlands or New Zealand or Finland, in terms of population, small, large area, or it could be a huge country like Japan, all of those countries internally are very equal. So in Japan, if you come up with a good idea, a good policy, and it's well delivered, then it will have more or less the same outcomes in Hokkaido in the far north or Kyushu in the far south, even though they're 2,000 kilometers apart, it doesn't really matter. And they'll have fairly similar impacts as they do in the middle with Tokyo and Osaka. It doesn't matter because everything's more or less the same. And that's true in countries like the Netherlands, Finland, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Japan, and so on. In the UK, that is simply untrue. The partitioning of the country means that we've basically got two countries in economics terms, which are partitioned. They're separating from each other more and more. So when we have national policies, which is how our politics works, we dream of policies, the chances of which working across the country are basically zero. 
Right. Because you're talking about completely different countries. So one of them is the extreme centralization of governance. I'm not in any sense criticizing civil servants. It's not about that. It's the way that we govern ourselves. That's the interaction between parliament, between civil service, how central government relates to local government. We have no means or levers to address the variations in the country. And that's a big right. part of the problem. So countries like the United States, obviously, uh, you have a lot, a lot more... Uh, regionalization. Regionalization, because you get more autonomy at the state level. The time, yep. Australia, a fairly small population, but obviously this, the same deal there, that uh, right. there's a lot, lot a much more federated model. That's right. That's right. And, I mean, Germany's the obvious case. It's a similar yeah. size yeah. economy to us in terms of population. Population density is very similar, except London, the size of our cities are very similar and so on. They do things completely differently. Everything is, is regional and local. Now, that's important because what it means is local citizens, communities, businesses know that they can have a say in how things should be organized and run in their localities and communities. And that itself galvanizes engagement. People get involved in government and what you generate is good governance. We have right. the opposite. I mean, we, we have a, an absurd pyramid structure in terms of our governance. I always think it looks almost like the shard you know, the, the, the tall building in London is just so steep. And right at the top, you've got all the power makers. The citizens are at the bottom and they have no way of reaching the top. They know they don't because but, having a pyramid governance system that we have just maximizes the degrees of separation between the But, but Philip, I'm, I'm unclear. If, if okay, say I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a tech startup in Manchester, for the sake of example, yeah. um, and I've got access to employees who come to me having had education, could be anywhere in the UK, but the same uh, curriculum, the same background. They come there, they work for me. Why am I less successful, less productive than something like that in, I don't know, Basingstoke. I don't see how what you're saying affects that. Well, 75% of venture capital is within half an hour of London. Like by like, the same business has a much lower probability of getting capital, or the capital they get is on more restrictive terms. This is, this is one of the puzzles in the UK. What, but is what? that that? But is that, okay? But isn't that the attitude of the financiers rather? Yeah, it's than an investment admi- issue. Yeah, rather than a, an administrative issue. Well, they're actually connected because. So one is the kind of governance side of things. We have an extremely inflexible and top-down system, which is almost uniquely ill-equipped to deal with the variations in the country. That's part of the story. Secondly, we have no financial financial literacy on the part of our sub-central governance systems because they're not allowed to do anything. They basically just do what Whitehall tells them. That's all they can do. So Mm. investors who might be interested in big investments, whether it's real estate developments, infrastructure, skills training, whatever, have no incentive to work with local government because why would you? Because they can't do anything anyway. They don't have the resources or the people or the money. They're not allowed. They don't have the flexibility, legal autonomy or anything. Whereas in countries like Canada and Germany, Australia, this is just a normal way of working. They don't ask permission from the centre. They're not interested in what they say in Canberra. What they do in Western Australia, they decide to do. And the important point is it develops huge financial competence and literacy on the part of the institutions. So private sector investors are happy to get involved because they know that these things are going to be done properly. We have no means of doing that in the UK. So the the regulatory and the public sector administrative side actually is connected with how private investors think. And in the UK, private investors just think, why would I go there? What, What is going to anchor my investments here to to really increase the chances of those investments being successful there's very little to hold on to so is that the nub of the issue or is, is there something else i mean if well, we I if we well, solve that also, 
these are all elements. So the centralization yeah. of governance is one. That, that's been catastrophic. And the centralization of governance in the UK also goes along with a merry-go-round where you get different ministers come in, whatever party, and of course they want to change everything. That's how they make a, their name mm. and what they did to put their footprint to it, you know, their, their stamp on something. So what you get is constant instability. So all our institutional setup is always short term. So investors are not interested in partnering with anyone anyway because everything's going to change in the next two or three years and you don't know what it's going to change to. So firstly, you've got top-down centralised behaviour also drives short-termism. Secondly, on top of that, we also know that capital markets do seem to be, when you look at the evidence, seem to be very distorted to parts of the country and not others. Why would that be? Well, short-termism is part of the story. That, that why would you take a long-term position in a, in a weaker place? It's more risky. And we yeah. do plus, know- you, plus, you'd look at the, plus, you'd look at the numbers and go, well, they're much more productive down here. Why would we invest up north? Well, I, I, mean, I mean, the capital I mean, markets yeah. ought to be able to deal with that. That's what portfolio theory is all about. It's just in the UK, it doesn't happen in a way that happens in other countries. And that's mm. part of the puzzle. And I think also, I think there's also a political overlay here. And I don't mean party political in any sense, but I mean, if you look at the period before the global financial crisis, the UK was outperforming most of the OECD countries in terms of productivity growth. Between during the 1990s and 2000s, the UK outperformed almost all of the OECD countries on almost every indicator, productivity levels and growth. Everything was strong. Interest rates were relatively low. Inflation was low. Business confidence was strong. And then suddenly we got hit by the global financial crisis and we got seemed to have got hit worse than other countries. But probably also the evidence, if you look at the flatlining of productivity, the flatlining of productivity stems entirely from the global financial crisis. But the flatlining in the UK is much more severe than other countries. I mean, there's really only Italy, Greece, with comparable shocks. I mean, other well, we did embrace austerity much more than most other OECD countries. Is that part of it? Well, if you look at the productivity, the kinks in the trend, if you like, you have the upward trends pre-crisis. We were comparable to everyone else and actually more than comparable to almost everybody else. But then the flat line, you get a kink, a downward shock in the trend. You get it straight after the global financial crisis. Every country did. But you start to see an uptick. But then from 2010, 2011 onwards, that f- that basically falls again, which in a sense coincides with the austerity uh, agenda. And then the second time you also see a further flattening was straight after the Brexit vote. And those mm. things are persisted. Now, which was cause and effect is part of a more complex story. But I think what you can see is that there was probably what we would say are expectations effects that you 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 know you get hit by a shock and then you also get hit by major political economy decisions which ex post afterwards seem like they've magnified the the adverse effects of those shocks that's how i would tend to think about it and really that's what all the data tells us so i know you've got a complicated set of technical mechanistic things about how the economy works and then you're overlaying also additional political economy things on top of that we're going to have to wrap up but it sounds like i mean it's not what what you're describing i mean it's largely it's an administrative issue in the in, in the way that we are politically managed within this country and that's difficult to change i mean we're, yeah. we're looking at sort of major constitutional reform to, to, to try and achieve that you know yeah. it's just and and 
I sense, though, that, you know, the issue is bubbling up because we are seeing this discrepancy and it got worse with COVID. It's got worse since the financial crisis in 2008, where, you know, as you say, the southeast is is running away from the rest of the country. And that's uh, creating this income gap almost certainly contributed to Brexit and the uh, yeah, the, uh, and, and, perpetuating. Uh, and the red wall seats that were won by the uh, by the Tory government with this promise that they were going to level up. Uh, but it sounds like what you're saying, well, levelling up is only going to happen if we have significant administrative change. Yeah, so decentralisation, encouragement of investment and consistency. I mean, those are the three pegs, aren't they? Yeah, in a, in, in a sense, yes, I agree. It, it, you know, we are where we are and we have to find what are the best ways moving forward, not in a a two-year or a five-year political cycle over 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. These are, you know, it's taken us 35 years to get into this mess, and it is a mess, there's no question. It's a huge mess. And you can see it in terms of public services. I mean, you know, the funding is not there. Systems are breaking down. But these are a long-run result of lots of these shocks which the economy has been facing and now we've got to find a way to move forward in the medium and long term and somehow we've also got to find a way to 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 give people optimism again and um you know and hope and that the expectation thing is really important when when you know the animal spirit as Keynes used to talk about when 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 business owners and investors start to feel optimistic again, they get back into the marketplace, you start to build up investment, people start to take on new technologies innovate and so on but when people are scared about the future then they hold back on these things because they're they're costly and they're risky and we've got to find a way to change that i personally think the the kind of devolution story is extremely important but it's got to be done correctly and that itself is a very complex issue a lot of people think it's just devolve a few taxes around business rates and stuff and somehow this will sort itself out that's that's just not the case. I mean, I, to be honest, I wrote a 570-page book on the problem. It's extraordinarily dense. And, but the reason is because it is so complicated. And, but we need medium and long-term thinking. And I should say there are people, I mean, I, I, you know, I talk to people across both sides of the House, the Parliament, some MP, um, MPs on different sides of the House and also in both Houses of Parliament, and there are a lot of people thinking very, very carefully and seriously about these things. You really do have an understanding and they traverse all the different political arenas and are really thinking very, very carefully about how can we move forward. So, you know, I, you know, I feel optimistic from the point of view that these conversations are being had now and people are really but, but- thinking about these things. Let's hope they get re-elected so they can do it, because as you said, the short-termism is half the problem. Uh, Philip, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah. Um, it's been really, a pleasure. Uh, really... I mean, I, I, you know, this is, it's such an important topic to be talking yeah. about. I mean, for me, you know, my view in terms of economics is the top, it's the, everything else is underpinned by this. So, you know, yeah. if, you're, if you're engaging with your audience, getting people to think about these things, and that's... That's tremendous, and I would I would suggest that um, you know your, your listeners um, have a uh, Google the Productivity Institute at the University of Manchester. The website <laughs> is extremely detailed and comprehensive, we'll- but also there's a lot of material in there which is very accessible to the kind of audience you'll have in your uh, your is- you know listening to your podcast. Is your 570-page uh, dissertation on that? Because because uh, I'll put next year aside to, to work my way through that one. Good to talk, Philip. Uh, great to have you on. Thanks yeah, for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much indeed. Oh, I know. So that was pretty productive. I tell you who was very productive. God. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh uh, he built the world in six days, yes. and then and then he's had a, had a day off. Listen, so if, nothing if, wrong with his work ethic. Was if you that? believe that, you're increasingly in a rather small group <laughs> in the UK because certainly Christianity. So can you believe this segue? By the way, it's just been done off the cuff. I know people would say you had a team of researchers working on this one. <sighs> no. Yeah, God uh, is uh, not given responsibility by a large number of people in this country because certainly the Christians are on the way down. We are no longer a Christian yeah. society. Fewer than half the country are Christians. And the other religions that are around are there, but they're not that big. And, and I think about a third of us just don't. So we say we one, do yeah. not have a and religion at all. That's yeah. growing. That's where yeah. we are. So in Christmas week, which is next week, yeah. we're going to have a look at what happens in a country that is becoming post-Christian. Does it matter? What difference does it make to our culture? What difference does it make to the kind of decisions we make? What difference does it make to who rules us? After all, King Charles is head of the Church of England. But if yeah. very few people subscribe to that, what on earth does that mean? Is this the spirit of Christmas doing this next week? Just before Christmas, look, wondering whether Christianity is well, is on the way out? We're, we're a bit Scrooge-like, I suppose. But that's fine. <laughs> that's the nature back. of it. Well, him, he's like that. I'm not really like that. Anyway, that's, that's next what week. we're going to be doing next week. All right, see you then. The Why Curve.